Stephen gave this incredible speech about Israel's tendency towards always missing what God was doing. Always. And then we saw how the Jewish leaders responded. And they responded the same typical way that they always responded to every prophet throughout that history, down to including Jesus himself. They responded how? With violence. So this blunt and pointed speech by Stephen sent the Jewish leaders into a rage and it resulted in the first martyrdom of the church. And then a great persecution came against the church in Jerusalem and the believers there were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now those who were scattered eventually went as far as Phoenicia, Phoenicia Cyprus, and Antioch. So check this out. What once was a small group of believers in Jerusalem had grown to a somewhat larger group, but still pretty small. And this group went up to Damascus. And Saul of Tarsus thought, hey, I can lift this thing in the book. I can stop this movement. It's early enough, the cancer hasn't spread. I can kill it off in Damascus, and so it can't spread any further. So, and, and you know, I'll leave my brothers down here in Jerusalem to do the dirty work here. At one time, they thought they could contain this thing and stop it, but now it's become uncontrollable, and churches are popping up everywhere. The intent of the persecution was to stop the movement, but it backfired. Instead of Stopping the church is what got it moving. So martyrdom in the church led to the multiplication of the church. So question, does God allow persecution? Maybe a better question, does God ordain persecution? Hold that thought, we're going to get back to that a little later. So persecution is like someone trying to stomp out a fire with his foot. But if you do that, your foot could cause a draft, and little embers from the fire could be launched upward and outward and spark in new fires. You could actually burn down a whole forest by trying to put out a small fire the wrong way. So here's Saul trying to stomp out this fire, this movement, the church, with his foot. And little fires start here and there, and now on fire Christians are everywhere. Satan's strategy to stop the church in chapter 7 only served to advance the church in chapter 8. Don't you love this? Satan strikes down God's choicest servant, Stephen. Ha, he thinks. I'm winning now. Next verse, everyone scattered and preached the gospel everywhere. Take that. And it gets better. Luke, Luke who wrote the book of Acts, tells us that Saul was there approving of Stephen's execution. He was going around ravaging the church 
which led to the scattering of the believers, which led to the founding of the church in Antioch, which led to uh, the church that sent out Saul slash Paul on global missions. Come on. You can't write a script better than that. So it says in our text that some of these men went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So I'll put together this simple little map to show us where these places are. Whoa. <laughs> Phoenicia is right here. This is on the coast of Lebanon. Um, Phoenicia is present-day um, Turkey. Cyprus is this island out here in the Mediterranean Sea. It's just off the coast. This, this whole area up here is Syria. So it's just off the coast of Syria. And Antioch is in southern Syria. Um, Yes. Did I say Cyprus was present-day Central Turkey? No. Okay, I got that right. Antioch is present-day Central Turkey. So the believers that were scattered to these places were speaking the truth, speaking the word, speaking the gospel, but only to Jews, to no one else. So these Jewish believers who had fled to these places still believed that salvation was for the Jews only. So apparently they were not around in chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11 to see what was going on concerning the Gentiles, where Gentiles were hearing the gospel, where the Holy Spirit was falling on them, and where the Jewish believers, you know, in Jerusalem and Caesarea were coming to terms with and confessing to the Gentiles also as God granted repentance that leads to life. They weren't around to witness all that. So these believers were speaking only to the Jews. But this is about to change. In verse 20, we see the word but. The word but here means something has changed. So look at verse 21. It says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. These men were just not seeking out Jews. They were targeting Hellenists. So, Hellenists, who are they? What do we know about them? Well, you know who they are. We've come across them twice already. First in chapter 6, um, Kyle referenced the story already this morning, where there was a complaint in the church, and as a result, seven men were chosen to serve. You know the story. And then we saw them again in chapter 9, where Saul disputed with them after his conversion. So those Hellenists were... Greek-speaking Jews. The Hellenists here in chapter 11 were not the same Greek-speaking Jews that we saw back in Jerusalem. They were more likely Greek-speaking Gentiles. So, these men who came from Cyprus and Cyrene were deliberately targeting these Hellenists, these Gentiles, with the Gospel. You do know that the believers that fled Jerusalem because of the persecution 
They were not called into the mission field. Their mission call was run for your life. Uh, but as they were running, you know, they had good news to tell, right? But they were only sharing this good news with other Jews. But these men from Cyprus and Cyrene were on a mission to share the good news with everyone. So don't miss this. Here we have ordinary, unnamed men, people just like us, no one special. None of these men were apostles or prophets. So, you know, sometimes we feel like we have to be super spiritual, you know, to go out and spread the word, to spread the gospel. It's just not the case. Now, you know, it does help to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that empowers us to be bold and go out and share the gospel. But none of these men, you know, were preachers or gifted speakers. They were just ordinary people like you and I. But they probably were somewhat radical. They were mavericks. They were bold in their faith. You know, it was huge for Jewish believers to be reaching out to Gentiles with all their Jewish beliefs and background. This was big. And, you know, I know we saw Peter doing it in chapter 10, but it wasn't until God showed him in a vision not to call anyone common or unclean. But these men were not around in chapter 10. They didn't see what happened in Caesarea and in Jerusalem, where Gentiles were hearing the gospel. And some of these men traveled a long way from Cyrene. Cyrene's not even on the map. Cyrene is way over in northern Africa. So they came a long way um, <clears throat> to Antioch. And they were on a mission. They were on a mission to share the gospel with the Gentiles. So Antioch, let's talk a moment about Antioch because a lot of stuff went down in Antioch. I don't know where you got in your discussions. Antioch is a very interesting city. Uh, Antioch, okay, so here's Israel down, I mean Israel's down here. This is all Syria. Jerusalem to Antioch is 300 miles. Um, it's about 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. It was founded in 300 BC by a man named Seleucus, who was a former general of Alexander the Great. Syria was also known as Antioch of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, first being Rome, second Alexandria of Egypt, and third Antioch of Syria. Uh, the population at, at this time was 500,000, it's half a million people. And the way the city was, was positioned on the Orentes River made it a perfect trade route. It also had several major highways or roads that ran through it, through it, making it a very prosperous, thriving city. It was known for its business, commerce, sophistication, and culture. It was a very metropolitan, cosmopolitan city with a mixed population of Greek, Roman, and Jewish people. It was a melting pot of different cultures. So Antioch was known for two things. First, for its successful business. But second, anyone know what Antioch was known for? Its immorality. Antioch was a very corrupt city. With the possible exception of Corinth, 
um, immorality abounded in the city of Antioch more so than any other city in the empire. It had a well-established reputation for its moral laxity. There were a lot of cults in Antioch, um, religious cults that were well-established and very popular, that were just basically prostitutes with a religious veneer. You would come to worship a pagan god while consorting with a prostitute. It was a huge infrastructure centered around immorality and wickedness. If you think about Jerusalem being all about religion, and Rome all about power, and Alexandria all about intellect, and Athens all about philosophy, then you could say that Antioch was all about business and immorality. Now I want to say this now because you could get confused a little later. There are two Antiochs. We're going to read about another Antioch a couple chapters from now. And that's common. It's common to have two places named the same thing. Just like there's a Cuba off the coast of Florida, there's also a Cuba, New Mexico. There's a Nashville, Tennessee, a Nashville, North Carolina. Las Vegas, Nevada, Las Vegas, New Mexico, and so on. So it's not uncommon to have two places named the same thing. Look at verse 21. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of the believed turned to the Lord. The hand of God was with these men. So it's, you know, it's just evident that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and God was pleased with these men. Because God is doing a mighty work here. You know, God is breaking down barriers and He's setting captives free here in Antioch. And it says a great number who believe turn to the Lord. This is another way of saying faith and repentance. You know, to believe is to have faith. <clears throat> to turn to the Lord is to repent. Turn from His sin, turn to the Lord. So these Gentiles were turning from their pagan gods and they were turning to the one true God, the only God who could save them. You know, all these other pagan gods, you know, with a small g, they're, they're useless. They really are. There's only one God who's worthy of our honor, worthy of our worship, who can save you from your sins and give you the hope of eternal life. There's only one. So all this exciting stuff that's happening in Antioch concerning the Gentiles. And the news of this gets back to the church in Jerusalem. You know, the ears of those back at headquarters perk up. Huh. Gentiles, 300 miles from here, are coming to the Lord. Hmm. Interesting. We've got to go check this thing out. So what do they do? Verse 22 says they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So Barnabas, who is this man? What do we know about Barnabas? Well, We've seen him twice already. He was introduced in chapter 4. He owned some land up there in Cyprus. He sold that land, laid it at the apostles' feet. So he encouraged the church with the finances. So they called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph. He appeared again in chapter 9, where they referred to him again as Barnabas. So that's just his new name, Old Barnabas. So in chapter 9, if you recall, Saul left Damascus and went back down to Jerusalem. Now, Acts doesn't lay out all the details. You have to look elsewhere to fill in the gaps. 
Um, we see it um, in Galatians. It says, when Saul escaped Damascus, and you remember the story, but he lowered him in a basket, um, he didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. He went to Arabia for three years. You can see that in Galatians 2, verses 17 and 18. Then he came back to Damascus, and then he went down to Jerusalem to try to join the disciples. And the disciples were like, no way. Huh? We're not buying this. You know, they were traumatized by what took place with the persecution. They saw people being dragged off of prison. They saw the, the murder of Stephen. They were petrified of Saul. They weren't buying it at all. And, you know, rightly so. They did not believe that he was now a disciple of Jesus. But Barnabas, once again, the encourager, convinced the disciples that Saul was now one of them. So now Barnabas, he's on his way to Antioch. He leaves Jerusalem, makes the 300-mile trek up to Antioch. And he is going to be an encourager to the church there. Now Barnabas, he was not an apostle. He was just a generous, big-hearted believer. Verse 24 tells us he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Verse 23 says, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So, how do you see the grace of God? <coughs> you know, were they glowing? Like Moses, when he descended from outside of the Ten Commandments? Were they wearing halos? No, of course not. The definition of grace could be this. God's life, power, and righteousness given to us by unmerited favor. It's through grace that God works effective change in our hearts and lives. Grace gives us new life, which is not condemned by God. Barnabas saw the grace of God. He saw the change in the people. Not just a few. It tells us a great many people were added to the Lord. And he was glad. He was pleased. He was thrilled to see what was happening. And he <coughs> He encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So his message was basically, don't quit. Don't give up. You made the right choice. Life is going to get hard around here. It's not going to be easy following Jesus. And I want to warn you now, to never give up. You know, the prostitutes on the corner, they're not going away. They're, they're waiting to trip you up. Remain faithful, or you'll find yourself right back where you were in bondage to sin. Many verses 25 through 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great <coughs> And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So picture this. In Tarsus, there's a man waiting. In Antioch, there's a man thinking. In Tarsus, the waiting man is Saul. When he was in Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him. So 
So the disciples sent him to Tarsus. He's been in Tarsus now for seven years. So he's having thoughts like, okay, the first prophecy I ever got in Damascus was from Ananias. And he told me, I'm going to be a witness before kings, Gentiles, and the children of Israel. That was ten years ago. Three years in Arabia, seven years in Tarsus. A whole decade and nothing. That's the waiting man. In Antioch, there's a thinking, praying man. Barnabas. And he's thinking thoughts like, he's looking around at this crazy city. <coughs> there's a lot of work to be done here. And it was a very unusual city, you know. We have a mix of Jewish, Greek, and Roman people. Who would be the best leader to bring to this city? I know. That guy Paul. He's over in Tarsus, not that far away. Tarsus is about 100 miles from Antioch. So because Saul, you see was Jewish Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew all the traditions and rituals of Judaism. But he was also Greek by culture, being a Hellenistic Jew. I mean, he spoke Greek. When he was in Athens, he would quote Greek writers. And third, he was a Roman citizen. Jew, Greek, and Roman. Perfect guy to bring to Antioch. Not to mention his miraculous conversion as Jesus stopped him in his tracks on his way to Damascus to try to stop the church. Instead, Paul got stopped. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus. He finds Paul and brings him back to Antioch. And they remain there for a whole year. And they taught a great many people. This is the beginning of Paul's ministry. Antioch will become Paul's home base. It will become the church that will launch Paul and send him out on global missions. Um, Paul will go on to write 13 of the 27 New Testament books. If you count Hebrews, that's 14. Some do. Um, that's about half the New Testament books. Paul will spread the teachings of Jesus in the first century world. He will take four significant missionary journeys throughout his life. Um, they took him across Asia Minor and Europe, where he planted churches to promote the Christian movement. Paul is often considered to be the most important man after Jesus to have ever lived in the history of Christianity. Paul's life will ultimately end in Rome. He will die as a martyr. His head will be decapitated. <coughs> Ouch. The sole mission of Paul was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He taught that Jesus still lives, that he was the Messiah, and that he will return. Now, I've heard it said by several different preachers that if it weren't for Barnabas, Paul, and Stephen... The church would still be in Jerusalem and the gospel would have never spread. And half the New Testament would have not been written. And I see their point. I mean, there's some truth to that. But God is sovereign. If it weren't Stephen, Paul, and Barnabas, it would have been Fred, Ed, and Ted. 
pray that was for you. Finally, you're going to say something crazy. He would have been highly disappointed. Pray <laughs> <laughs> gets my humor. My point is, God could have used anyone. You know, God chose these men as his instruments to, to spread the gospel. So it says in Antioch, they were first called Christians. Up at this point, you know, they, the believers, have been called several things. Disciples, brothers, followers of the way. But now Christians, meaning they are associated with Christ. You know, the name expresses the close relationship between Christ, the anointed one, and with his people who share his anointing in the Holy Spirit. So two quick things, and we'll wrap this up. I mentioned earlier, does God allow or ordain persecution? Have you noticed that our culture is trending further and further away from God? And as we become more and more of a godless society, we Christians are going to be hated more and more. So I really believe you know, that we need to prepare ourselves for the persecution that's surely coming. And I know that doesn't sound fun. We like our comfortable lives. I know I do. But if God allows or even ordains persecution, then you know, we need to begin to embrace it. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 5.44 But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 2 Corinthians 12.10 For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Luke 6.22 Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And there's many more passages on persecution that I could share. Second thing I would like to say is, you know, we are called to make disciples. You know, Jesus commanded us to do so in Matthew 28. Go to all the nations, make disciples. You know, in our church constitution on Article 2, our mission is to make disciples, new ones and strong ones. You know, we have the same good news, the same Holy Spirit within us that these men in our passage today have. You know, so what's keeping us from sharing the gospel with our neighbors? Maybe you can't go to South America or Afghanistan or you know overseas on a far mission trip. But what about our neighbors? I mean there are people all around us who need Jesus who you know there's a church on every corner and everyone you know we think in our American minds that surely everyone knows about Jesus. There's a church on every corner. But it's just not the case. You know, life is short. Tomorrow's not given is not promised to any of us. We need to make the most of our time. God has commissioned us to go and make disciples.
that's fine. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truths. Thank you for your words, your truths that change our hearts and draw us closer to you. Just transform us more into your image. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would dwell in us. That would, it would move us to um, just move out of our complacency, Father, and just, just have an urgency about us to spread your word. It's time is short. Lord, I pray that um, God, that we would just be on fire for you. God, I pray for we fathers who have children in our homes, Lord, that we would be teaching them, praying with them. God, it's a great calling on our lives. Lord, may we step up to the calling that you have given us. Father, we thank you for the bread and the cup. We thank you for the sacrifice that you endured on our behalf. Thank you for making a way when there was no other way. Thank you for salvation. Like we saw earlier, we bring nothing to the table. You've done it all. You've paid it all. We're indebted to you, Jesus. We love you with all our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just before Jesus' betrayal, arrest, monkey court he had to endure. He met with his disciples in the upper room where he took the bread and he broke it. He said, take and eat, for this is my body, broken for you. Then Jesus took the cup and he said, take and drink, for this is my blood poured out for the sins of many. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, when Jesus said all these things, I'm banking on the disciples were like clueless what was really going on. They were just going along with it. You know, it wasn't until after his crucifixion and resurrection that the light bulb came on that they started connecting the dots. Jesus talked about going to the cross and dying many times, and they were like oblivious to what he was talking about. Thankfully, we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus sacrificed for the cross and we can be reconciled back to the Holy God. We will be completely lost and hopeless and still dead in our sins if it weren't for Jesus. So let's praise Him. If you are a believer, we invite you to come and take the Lord's Supper. Brother Kyle, would you join me this morning? <clears throat> 